Well, in our morning services, we've been working our way through Genesis, and uh, we've been uh, following the life of Abraham. We're going to read the Bible together just now, and uh, we've been picking out, we've not been looking at every chapter, we've been picking out some of the, the significant uh, uh, highlights, as it were, in the story of Abraham, and we come uh, this morning to a very significant part of the story in, in uh, Genesis chapter 22 where uh, Isaac has been born, and then Abraham is tested. So Genesis chapter 22, it's page 22 of the Red Pew Bibles, and we're going to read the first 19 verses of this chapter. This is God's Word. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and saddled his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servants, Stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship, and then we will come back to you. Abraham took the word, wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac, and he himself carried the fire and the, uh, the knife. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father, Abraham, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and the wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. When they reached the place God had told him about, Abraham built an altar and there arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham looked up, and there in a thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place the Lord will provide. And to this day it is said, on the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham from heaven a second time and said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities and of their enemies, and through your offspring all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. Then Abraham <clears throat> returned to his servants and they set off together for Beersheba, but Abraham and Abraham stayed in Beersheba. Amen. We trust that God will bless to us his word, John. Now, as we get into this, here's what we want to set it up with. Whenever it comes to life, how we answer certain questions can determine our life. 
So whenever it comes to life, how we answer certain questions can determine our life. So whenever I get a, a phone call through on the landline and I lift it and someone says, hello, is that Mr. or Mrs. Graham? And not Graham. I know instantly if I answer this the wrong way that I'm stuck for the next 15 or 20 minutes with someone trying to sell me shoe insurance or with some other ridiculous thing that they're trying to sell me. If I answer, yes, it is Mr. or Mrs. Graham, then I'm stuck, right? Or whenever it comes to your car theory test, if you, if you don't answer the correct questions, you're stuck, aren't you? And then you have to go back to your friends and say, oh, I didn't get it this time and I'm going to have to reset it. And the freedom that you thought you were going to get, you can't get. Or if someone has ever asked you to marry them, the answer that you give will determine a lot of your life. Questions and answers are really, really important. And in our text today, I believe that we have one of the most important questions that that has ever been asked in all of history. One of the most important. Because how we answer it has eternal consequences, and you'll find it in verse 7. This question, where is the Lamb? Where is the Lamb? You see, all of history pivots around this question. This is the question that has been on the lips of God's people effectively from Genesis chapter 3. Where is the Lamb? Where is the one who will be our saving substitute? Where is the one who will take our place? Where is the Lamb? And this question has reverberated from this moment through all of the pages of the Old Testament. Waiting and waiting and waiting. Where is the Lamb? And the answer to this question changes every soul in this room today. As we look for the answer of it, it changes everything in our world. This question and the answer to it has eternal ramifications for every human being who has ever lived. It's that big of a question. Where is the Lamb. Now, maybe you're a little bit confused by that question, why that question is so monumental for us, but as we step our way through, we're going to see two things, and as we see these two things this morning, I trust that you'll be able to see why this question is so pivotal for us. So, the first of our two things, the first is this, the costly command. Look at verse 2 with me. Then God said, Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains. I will tell you about it. As we read those words, as I have read those words this week in preparation for this, these words... They have to cause us an issue, don't they? We should read these words and our our mouths should fall open and our eyebrows should be raised and we should think, "What, what is going on? The God that we claim to love and follow, the one that that we have given our lives for as Christian people, our God, in verse 2 of Genesis chapter 22, asks Abraham to take his son, his only son, the son that he loves, And to sacrifice him? 
what is going on? What is God sanctioning? What is he commanding here? This, this costly command. It's abhorrent, isn't it? It's repugnant and repulsive for us as people as we, as we read these words. Put ourselves into Abraham's shoes. These must have been some of the most painful words that he had ever heard in his entire life. The son, the son that he had waited 25 years for, his promised son, his precious son. And the Lord in verse 2 says, take your son and sacrifice him. And Abram, Abram in Genesis chapter 12, what had, he, what had happened to him? He had came out of a, of a pagan culture the Lord had taken him by his grace. He had scooped him up and he had brought him out and he had made a covenant with him. And in this, in this pagan culture, what were they doing? They were sacrificing their children. The, the Canaanite men were sacrificing their firstborns as a way to, to appease the gods. But Abram had been taken out of that. He knew that our God was not like the gods of, of Cana or the gods of the pagan world. You can imagine he scratches his head, all of the hopes, all of the dreams that he had for Isaac. The very promise that God had given to him. If there's no Isaac, well then there's no promise. No Isaac, no covenant. You see, Abram needed Isaac to reach the age where he could, where he could marry and have a wife and then have his, his own offspring. And then through that offspring, the, the seed would bless the whole world. Remember the promise? Through you. The nations will be blessed. No Isaac, no covenant. And so the promises rest on his survival. And what age is Isaac? Sometimes we think that Isaac's a, a little boy, a little toddler at this stage. Uh, notice what it says in the text. It says in verse 3 that, that he had enough wood. And then as they make this journey, what does he do? What does Abraham do? He puts the wood onto Isaac. Isaac's a, a young boy. He's maybe around somewhere they reckon between 10 and 14 years of age. He's strong enough to carry this wood. And so he's, he's aging, but he's not quite at the age yet. So what's going on? What is going on whenever we come to Genesis 22 and to verse 2? Well, let's take a step back because as we read Genesis chapter 22 and verse 2, what do we know? Well, we know that God was not going to require Abraham to kill him, don't we? We know that, but Abraham didn't. And it's a test. It's a test for Abraham that he would be able to see who God is in this test and that he would be obedient to God. So, yes, Abraham is being tested. We, we read that, verse 1. But there's also something else going on. Think about it like this, right? Imagine that, that you go out your back garden and you build a fence. And you get 
concrete posts and you put them in and you make sure that you buy the most sturdy of wood that you can and then you riddle the thing with nails so that it's really, really secure. And then you go to your friend and you say, look, I've, I've, built, the, I've built the strongest fence ever. There'll be no storm. doesn't matter if it's storm, whatever name they're going to give it to it this year. It doesn't matter what storm's going to come. That fence is going to stand. I, I go out and test it. Go out and see. And so your friend goes out and, and they pull on the fence as hard as they can and they hang from the fence and they, they run into the fence and they, they thump at the fence and the fence stands. And you stand back with a big smile on your face and say to them, well, I told you I knew it would stand because I'd built it so well. It's a test. A test for them, but also it's a test in a sense of, of your ability. And as we come into Genesis 22, it, it, there's a test for Abraham, but what is he testing? He's testing the character of God, isn't he? Can God be trusted with my life? Can God be trusted with my son and with the life of my son? And in a sense, Genesis 22 teaches Abraham the biggest lesson, how much he can trust God, that God's character is consistent, that it is constant, that it never changes. And so Abram's faith is, on te- is being tested, it's on trial, but it's also saying that God, God is a God who loves and who is gracious and who is kind all the way through and that he really can be trusted. It's a costly command in verse 2, but it reveals both who Abraham is and who God is. Now, in Hebrews chapter 11, and I think I have the verse, it'll come up on the screen. Hebrews chapter 11 gives us further insight into this. This is Scripture interpreting Scripture. And so here we have this Old Testament passage, and then we have comment on it in the New, in Hebrews chapter 11. And this is really helpful for us to understand a little bit more what's going on in this difficult passage. So Hebrews chapter 11, and in verse 17, it says, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promise was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And he considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. What's going on in Abram's mind as he makes this three-day journey towards this mountain where he's going to have to offer his son, even as he was doing that, such was his faith in the Lord that he knew that even, even if Isaac should die, that the Lord would raise him from the dead again. So sure was he of our God. He was sure that God would keep his promises and that the boy's life would be preserved. Look at verse 5 of our text of 22, Genesis 22. Verse 5, see how he refers to what's going to happen. He speaks to the servants, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. See the faith that he has, his confidence in the Lord, in the one who was testing him that God was still good, that God was still in control, that God would still uphold the covenant promises. 
He was sure that God would provide a way, a means, a solution to this problem, to a, a payment for the sin. Now, now, how do we start to reference sin? Why am I starting to bring in sin? Well, that's what's going on in verse 2. You see, look at the type of offering that it is. It's a sacrifice that is a burnt offering. Now, that, that, should, that should throw up a little warning sign for us, a, a little identifier for us, that this offering that, that the Lord was asking for was a, an offering for sin. It's a sin offering. In the Old Testament, the blood of an animal would be shed, and sin would be atoned for. That means that payment would be made for it, that amends would be made for the sin. And so really, in verse 2, what should we see? We should see that God is serious whenever it comes to sin. That He is a holy God. And that Abraham's sin and the sins of his family are so great that they would have to be paid for by his son. Such is the severity of sin, the wrath that is due for sin. The justice that a holy God demands. And yet, there's a little echo of Genesis chapter 3 in this. Because in Genesis chapter 3, what happened? Adam and Eve had a covering made for them. Blood was shed as these animals' skins covered them. And that would be a forerunner to see what would happen, that, that blood would have to be shed to cover people's sin. And so Abraham here was sure that the Lord would provide, just like he did in Genesis 3, that he would provide again. And so by faith, Abram trusted and he obeyed God. How do we apply this? How do we start to apply this into our lives? Well, although we will never walk along the same path here that Abraham did, the Lord will never require us to sacrifice in this sense. But we will go through sufferings. We will go through moments of trial of various kinds. And in those moments, what do we have to do? Well, we have to do exactly what Abraham did. We have to trust God, be sure of who He is, of who His character is, of the consistency of our God, that He is a God of love and care and provision. If we trust God, that we know that he, he has our good in mind and through everything that He brings into our life, that He knows that what He is doing. In those moments by faith, we are confident that He is still good, that He's still in control, and that He's still upholding His covenantal promises. And so, we see the costly command. But then come with me to verses 7 to verses 8. Verses 7 and verses 8 are the high point of this text. And this is our point, the pointing provision. This is the pointing provision. Verses 7 and verses 8 are the pinnacle. One commentator describes them as this, the most poignant and eloquent sentences in all of literature. Because as the son is bound, as Isaac is on the altar, and as Abraham's knife is taken and lifted high, ready to be thrust into Isaac, what happens? God intervenes through an angel. Verse 11. Abraham. Abraham. Here I am. He replied. Into this most dramatic of scenes. What happens? Well, verse 13. 
There's a a ram caught in the thicket. The Lord has provided. His provision has spurred the life of Isaac. And so verse 14, Abram calls out and he says, this place will be called the, the place that the Lord provided. His great declaration. It's a great moment of relief, isn't it, for us in this text? As the drama cranks up and cranks up, as we think Abram's going to have to sacrifice Isaac, and then God steps in and God provides. And look at how verse 14 ends. On the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. There's a, there's a, little, there's a little breadcrumb there, isn't it? The Lord has provided this ram that is caught in a thicket. But then the Lord on this mountain, He will provide again. And so what happened throughout Israel's history? From this moment, they looked towards this mountain for the lamb that would be provided, that the the atonement would come, the full provision would come for the people. And so through every century of the Old Testament, through every decade, what did they do? They looked towards this very hill where one would be provided. And so this provision, this provision in Genesis 22 of this ram points us directly to Jesus. And so this passage comes with power this morning and with grace and truth and with relief for us. Through God's provision, Isaac can live. And it's like he's had a resurrection moment, isn't it? Here he was bound on the altar, sure of death, and then his father unbinds him and he rises, as it were, to life again. But in this, and and we're, we're running through this very quickly, I want to pull some of these things out this morning, but there's so much more that we could focus on. But, but here's a little thing that has annoyed me through this week. As we look at this, right, Abraham, whenever he comes to this in verse 7, Isaac asks, where is the lamb? Verse 8, Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering. Simple. But then what happens is that in verse 13, it's not a lamb, it's a ram. (laughs) That's really annoying, isn't it? It would have been lovely and tidy and neat if if it had been a a lamb. He said that the Lord would provide a lamb, and yet here's it's, it's a ram. Why is it a ram? What's going on in the text? I think the reason is this. The point is meant to be that the lamb hasn't yet arrived. This ram is only a temporary solution. It's a temporary measure, but the full payment for sin, it hasn't yet arrived. The the perfect lamb of God isn't here. And so the question of verse 7 should still echo in our minds, where is the lamb? And it's left unanswered, isn't it? It's left unanswered in the text. And we're wondering, will God do this for me? Will God provide a ram or where will the lamb be? And so all of history cries out, where is he? Where is the lamb? Until John chapter 1 and verse 29. And in John chapter 1 and in verse 29, John the Baptist says, behold, the lamb of God 
who takes away the sin of the world. And all of history should say, here he is. Here is the Lamb. And this very sentence at the start of John's gospel should trigger us all the way back into Genesis chapter 22 and into verse 7. And what we see in this passage in 22, in Genesis 22, is that it, it is pregnant, it is, it is heavy and pregnant with allusions towards the Savior, the, the one who would come, the perfect Lamb of God, the one who we all need. This text here lifts high Jesus in so many ways. Because what do we see? Well, it's the, the gospel told in its first instance, isn't it? Abraham, what does he do? Abraham saddles a donkey with his son and he heads up this mountain to offer a sacrifice of sin. And the wood is placed upon the obedient son's back. Jesus, 2,000 years later, would saddle a donkey and would ascend the exact same hill and would take the wood upon his back in obedience, being, in a, a, being an obedient son to his father, and he would make the sacrifice for sin. And so on this very same hillside that Abraham and Isaac, as they, as they walked up it, as a, as a father loved his son, and the Lord provided a substitute. Mercy and grace were provided. And the Lord determined that the blood of a ram would be shed in the place of Isaac. Thousands of years later, Jesus would ascend the exact same hill. And he would shed his blood. Not just for one, but so that all nations of the world could be blessed through his sacrifice. And so what we have here is in seed form, what will be fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's what we call in technical terms, penal substitutionary atonement. Now, what does that mean, penal substitutionary atonement? It's just a point for us to note that it means that the wrath that was deserved upon us has been taken in our place by Jesus, the Lamb of God. And so what is it that Christians, what is it that we sing? Do we sing and, and repeat time after time, worthy, worthy is the Lamb. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. The one who reigns victorious. And that's why in Revelation chapter 5, and if you want, you can turn with me here to this, because this is, this, this is the climax of of Genesis, and then of Calvary, and then of the new heavens in Revelation chapter 5, and in verse 11 through 13. These words should come with, with real gusto to us this morning. As we come to the Lord's table, Revelation 5, and verses 11 through 13, John, as he writes what he sees, says this, then I looked, in verse 11 of chapter 5, then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders and the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. 
And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Worthy. Worthy is the Lamb. And so as Abraham, the covenantal father, leads his covenantal son up the hill of Mount Moriah, the Lord determined that this covenantal son would go free. And he would only go free because the ultimate covenantal son, God's own son, would shed his blood, would carry his own wood, would lay down his own life at the altar of Calvary so that his seed might live. And so on this day in Genesis chapter 22, the ram emerged from the thicket and a covenantal son was spurred. But on a later day, what would happen? Well, the promised lamb, the covenantal son would not be spurred. That's why Romans 8, 32 says this. He did not withhold his own son, but he gave him up for all of us. This is an incredible passage this morning, isn't it? It's a passage that should impact us again. God's provision. God's provision for our greatest problem of sin, our greatest need. And that's why the hymn writer puts it like this, and with this we're almost done. The hymn writer says, and can it be, And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died he for me who caused his pain. And then this line, for me who him to death pursued. Amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, should die for me. And so our cry this morning, verse 14, Abram called that place, the Lord will provide, and from that we have the saying, Jehovah Jireh, meaning the Lord will provide. And our cry should be hallelujah this morning. Our God saves. And so we close with this, the question, where is the Lamb? Where is the Lamb? And how you answer that changes everything today. Because either you say it is Jesus, the one who has died in your place, who has forgiven you of your sins, who has granted you life eternal, or you have missed the lamb completely. Either we have cried on to Jesus to be our Savior, to be the one that we are relying on, the one who has made payment for our sin, the one who has taken our place, or we haven't. And you see, Isaac is loosed, isn't he? He's loosed from the altar on Mount Moriah because of God's provision, his provision of a substitute. And so as the hand of a holy God's justice loomed large over Isaac that day, God stepped in, didn't he? God stepped in and provided another way. And in a sense, we are all on the altar as human beings. 
and either we're under the hand of God's wrath that will fall upon us, or we know the hand of our Father because of what Jesus has done, loosening us from the altar and saying, go, go and live. So have we cried unto Jesus? Has the Father's hand taken us and set us free? This is love. This is God's provision. And this is our greatest need. How do we respond? How do we respond to Genesis 22? Well, I trust today that we will be caught up in worship for a God who provides that we would see the cross today through a new lens, a deeper lens, a lens that makes us love Jesus as we come to the table and as we remember what He has done for us, that we see it in all of its beauty and glory afresh today, that we see Him, and that this passage would set our hearts on fire for Jesus, the one who is impeccably obedient to His Father, so that we would live. And then another application for us, that we would be obedient whatever God calls us to, that we would place our faith in Him, that in every circumstance that we face, every high and every low, that He is constant, and that the Lord has laid down His life so that we can live, and therefore we can live for Him. And if you're not a Christian this morning, I trust that you would see this passage and you would see Jesus in it and you would see your need for Jesus as you're a person who's under the hand of God's wrath and you would cry this morning, Lord, forgive me. Lord, give me another way. And he will point you to his provision, the provision of his only son. And he'll say through Jesus, if you repent and you believe, you can escape my wrath and you can have life everlasting if you'll cry upon him. And so with this we end. Behold the Lamb who takes away the sin of the world. Let us pray.